So if you want to, you can either close your eyes while I read Revelation 22, 1 to 3, or you can go there with me. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. Revelation is filled with many themes, one of the most prominent being God's kingship. And the throne is a powerful metaphor of that. And by highlighting the throne here, this final vision of the new Jerusalem shows us that God's absolute authority will be consolidated over all the earth and everything that exists upon it. From the outset of creation, God had intended that the earth would be a holy garden city from which he would dwell alongside human beings. In Genesis 1 and 2, God creates Adam and Eve, and he endows them with holy priestly status, and he enables them to serve in the temple garden and have direct access to him. In addition, he appoints this couple as his viceroys, his vice-regents, to govern the earth on his behalf. They're given dominion over all creation. And then we're told that they are made in the image of God. When this story is written by Moses, at, at that time, this was an image, usually meaning a regal status. So in the ancient Near East and Egypt and Mesopotamia, that phrase, image of God, was often linked to kings. The king was the living image of a god. As well as ruling over all of the creatures, the first human couple, as God's representatives, are instructed to be fruitful and fill the earth. Implicit in this instruction is the idea that God's authority will be extended throughout the earth as the people increase in number and spread outwards. But as we know, they commit treachery. They step out from under God's authority and they embrace the authority of the challenger to God's authority. The rest of the biblical story is especially interested in describing how the sovereignty of God will be restored and extended throughout the whole earth. How will God's kingdom be established throughout the world? How will his throne be set up in the holy garden city that is to fill the earth? How will human beings be rescued from the control of the enemy and be enabled to fulfill the purpose for which God created them? Well, of course, he gets so disgusted with the people that he ends up destroying the earth, rescues eight people, and then they begin to fill the earth again, and it gets, you know, rebellious again. And God comes to a pagan named Abram, 
And he just makes a covenant with him and tells him that he will be his God and he will bless him and his descendants. He will give him a land and that he and his descendants will be a blessing to the whole earth. That's chapter 12 of Genesis. And then in 14, we have this really interesting scenario. There's a battle between these four kings that are in charge of all the the area around that you can kind of look on your map even a little bit around the like the the eastern side of the Dead Sea Sea of Galilee they're kind of controlling things for it says 12 years and then the 13th year these other five kings rebel against their authority and so these are the first kings come and they meet on the like the southwestern edge of the of the uh, Dead Sea and they end up taking Lot, Abraham's nephew. He's still Abram at this time, Abram's nephew. And, of course, word gets to him. And Abram gathers his servant and get, his servants and gets, you know, gets an army together and chases them down and, and goes and recovers Lot and also all of the, the booty, all of the things that these other kings and their armies have taken. And he, bring, he brings them all back. And then Melchizedek, king priest of the most high God and the king of Sodom, one of the kings that benefited from Abraham's, one of the defeated kings benefited from Abraham's you know, saving of the booty, come to greet Abraham, Abram, right? And then uh, we read that Melchizedek, the king priest of Jerusalem, blesses Abram. He says, blessed be Abraham by Abram, by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And then the king of Sodom comes before Abram and says, Hey, you can keep all the booty that you, that, that I, uh, that you saved back for me. Right? So then these two distinctive forms of kingship, well, we have two distinctive forms of kingship represented by these, by these kings. Melchizedek acknowledges God's right to exercise sovereignty over the earth. The king of Sodom, who doesn't even mention God, typifies earthly or godless kingship that places sovereignty in the power of the individual. By affirming the truthfulness of what Melchizedek has to say, Abram indicates his own commitment to be a righteous priest king. As the story reveals, corrupted human kingship is about taking possession of the earth and using power to control others. Divinely instituted kingship seeks to reestablish God's sovereignty on the earth in line with the divine mandate given to human beings when first created. Then Abraham's descendants increase to a great multitude as they are in slavery in Egypt, and God rescues them in essence, describing how he is rescuing from the consequences of human sin with the intention of establishing both his sovereignty and a dwelling place on the earth. At Mount Sinai, God calls Abram's descendants, now the people of Israel, to be a kingdom of priests and a royal priesthood, and he makes a covenant with them. They are to worship him alone and to destroy the idolatrous peoples living in that land that God had promised. And because they failed to tell the story to their descendants for two, three hundred years, they live in rebellion 
in syncretistic worship or just outright idolatrous worship in rebellion against their sovereign. They conform to the cultures around them. And of course, over time, they get attacked by these people that they should have destroyed and they cry out and God faithfully raises up a deliverer for them, right? They are a loose confederation of tribes at this point. They're judged locally by councils of elders, right? But then when necessary, God raises up a deliverer to deliver the nation, right? So where we are now in this point of the story the Philistines have become, or Philistines, however you want to say it, I guess, have become the greatest threat to Israel's survival. They are a Western Sea people. You can see there, too, on the map. They're the coastal people. They have been driven from their lands by the Greeks, kind of pushing them inward a little bit, inland, right? They possess a very disciplined army, They have advanced iron technology, and Israel has never faced such an organized and disciplined state as the Philistines, right? All they are is when they have to gather, they're just conscripts, right? The men just just come and have to gather a loose army, loose, you know, not, not as disciplined, right? So... The Philistines are aiming at conquest and the existence of Israel is threatened, right? So we've already seen so far in the story that they have attacked Israel. They took the ark of the Lord, right? Um, and now at this point, we've got, um, we've got the, another, well, yeah, it, it, and then God raised up Samuel. And now we have something else coming up, right? So last week in chapters 8 through 9, we saw how they've forgotten Yahweh. When Nahash comes to um, Jabesh Gilead and threatens them, they ask for a king instead of asking Yahweh for a deliverer, right? And so the Lord tells Samuel, okay, I'm going to grant your request. So it's not that there's really a problem with the fact that Israel is to get a king. That's been the plan all along. When Abram showed himself worthy by acknowledging King Melchizedek, in that next chapter, well, in chapter 17, I guess it's the next chapter, chapter 17 is the, the circumcision ceremony. God promises Abram that kings will come from him. Well, that's where he also changes his name to Abraham. And God promises him that kings will come from you. So we know that's part of the plan. So the fact that there will be a king isn't the problem, right? It's the people's demand, right? And the kind of king that they wanted. It wasn't the kind of king that Yahweh had in mind. They wanted a king to lead them, and to provide military success, they do not express any desire to live more obediently as God's covenant people, which is what the role of the king was to be. Um, By the way, I am doing a lot of things out of, especially here, and 
mentioned here. I'm going to read you a quote from Dr. Goheen's book here next. The new institution of the monarchy was to allow Israel the independence and space to fashion itself into a people that reflect God's social order, to live as a united nation with all areas of its life submitted to God's Torah, with a king committed to the covenant and with a comprehensive law as the foundation of its covenant life, Israel now had the opportunity to bring God's will to bear on the whole range of life, social, political, economic, legal, and religious. So, we've seen Saul. We've met him. He's been, he's been anointed. The Spirit has come on him. He's been chosen even by lot before the people. But he hasn't been proven yet, right? And we actually have our doubts about him. In our group, at least last week, we talked about the fact that he didn't even really know about Samuel. That tells you a little, you know, a little something. It raises a little red, red flag in there, right? And then, um, did you notice those worthless fellows popped back up at the end of 10? <laughs> right? So... We left it kind of iffy in in 10. So now here in 11, we have Nahash and we have Saul being given the opportunity to to prove himself. So this story here of what happens takes us back to Judges 19 to 21. If you want to turn there, I'm going to just skim skim the story a little bit. Um, if you remember Darwin's sermons for these two, you know, I think it was two Sundays. It were really good. He, 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 remember he emailed us beforehand, I think, or said, this is going to be really, really descriptive for your kids. So just to warn you, right? So this Levite takes a concubine and she rebels against him and she goes back home to Bethlehem and he goes and gets her and they're making their way back to the hill country of Ephraim where he's from and his servant says, let's stop here in, in uh, Jebus, which turns out to be Jerusalem. And this is on your map, too. You can see the storyline. And uh, the, the Levite says, no, these aren't the Lord's people. I'm not going to stop here. Let's keep moving. And so they stop in Gibeah. And so this old man takes him in because that's the way there were no hotels then. So he just sat in the public square and waited. And this man came in from the fields and he sees him there. And he's like, what are you doing here? And he said, well, I'm traveling. And does that. so he takes him in and he shows him, you know, great hospitality and everything. And then the men of Gibeah come and say, hey, we want to ravish your guest. And he's like, are you kidding me? And they kind of try to fight him off a little bit. And then the man offers the concubine and his daughter, right? And then the, the Levite finally just gives up and sends his concubine outside and lets them ravish her. And she dies, of course. The next morning he opens the door and there she is, dead. He carries her corpse off to the hill country of Ephraim where he's from. And then he chops her up into 12 pieces and sends it out to the land of Israel. That is, that is his way of saying, uh, what are we going to do? What are we going to do here? He's calling all of the people together in this disgusting way, right? Um, when I talked to Darwin about this, he said, um, you know, just remember here that the Levite is a despicable person, 
<laughs> right? Um, so you don't like him. He's an anti-type, you know, not a great character. So then the people of Israel are totally outraged. They're like, what are we going to do? And it's like, well, there's nothing we can do but go to war against the, the Benjaminites. We have, this, is, cannot, this kind of thing cannot happen. So they assemble and they go to war against Gibeah and the Benjaminites, right? And they defeat them except for 600 men who flee. 600 men. And then they kind of feel sorry. They're like, oh my gosh, we can't lose a tribe, one of our brothers. And so they assemble at Bethel and they decide what, you know, what to do. They said, well, when we assembled at Mizpah to, to, you know, to initiate our plans, we decided that, um, that everybody had to come out. And if anybody didn't come out to fight against Benjamin, we would punish them or something like that. So who was it? Did anybody not come out to fight against Benjamin? Oh, the people of Jabesh Gilead. And so they go to war against the people of Jabesh Gilead and they take 400 virgins for the 600 Benjamites. Well, now they got 200 left. So what do they do? They tell them, okay, let's go to Shiloh and make a covenant there, renew a covenant. And if there are any of the, the first 200 dancing girls that come out from Shiloh to, you know, to, to worship the Lord, we'll take them. <laughs> and so that's how, that's how that was restored. So Jabesh Gilead, Gibeah, here we are again. But this is sort of a reversal. Saul is a Benjaminite from Gibeah, Right? And now he is God's anointed. That also took me back to Hannah's, Hannah's prayer. He's God's anointed, a Benjamite, Benjaminite from Gibeah, right? That disgusting city. And now he is going to be used to help save Israel. Another one of those wonderful reversals that the Lord is showing us that he turns everything on his head, right? And by the way, what Saul does, the chopping up of his oxen and sending that out, that was a maybe not common but an acceptable practice in the area at that time to call to unify disparate you know, groups out there to bring, to bring them together. So that was typical. Not a concubine, for crying out loud, right? <laughs> okay. All right, so then this happens. Then Saul gives credit to God for providing salvation, and he shows mercy to those worthless fellows. And then Samuel calls the people to renew the kingdom. And the commentators were saying that means it's going to establish Saul before all the peoples, once and for all, as God's chosen king. And then, I don't know if you marked these two verses in your scriptures, but did you realize that seven times in two verses are either the words Gilgal or there, meaning Gilgal? That tells us something, that that was very important. What was it? Joshua 4 and 5. If you want to turn there, you can. You can just skim over. Joshua takes the people of Israel across the Jordan. The, the Lord dries up the river as he did before, dries up the river. 
they are to take 12 stones from the river and they set them up in Gilgal. And there they worship the Lord. They have feasts. They celebrate the Passover again. Um, well, for the first time, I think it is, um, since, since they left. And then they have a circumcision ceremony. Circumcision had not been done while they were traveling in the wilderness. So all the new generation had to be circumcised. And then the Lord says to Joshua in Joshua 5, 9, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. So the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. Nahash wanted to bring shame upon all Israel. But the Lord defeated him through his anointed and brought salvation to Israel. The reproach was turned away once again and acknowledged by all the people at Gilgal. Clearly, the renewal of the kingdom that happens in verses 14 and 15 with many offerings and much celebration is to be understood as another significant renewal of Israel's relationship to her covenant Lord. Then we move on to chapter 12. This ceremony is probably something totally different from what happens in in, uh, chapter 11. Right? It is a covenant renewal ceremony of sorts. Harkens back to the last two chapters of Joshua 23 and 24. Like Joshua, Samuel is old and is preparing to transfer the care of the people into new hands. Joshua is calling the people back to covenant faithfulness and to reject the gods of the peoples. Samuel is doing the same. In verses 1 to 6, he's testifying as to his integrity before them as their leader so that he may continue in his role as prophet, mediating God's word to them and to the king. Even though a king is now being installed, the Lord still rules through his word. In verses 7 to 12, Samuel reviews their history, reviews God's faithfulness to them as their king and their savior, their rescuer. He rebukes the people for rejecting God as such. In verses 13 to 18, Samuel shows the people that they have now intertwined their lives with a king who is supposed to lead them in covenant faithfulness. They will stand or fall together. Samuel rehearses the blessings of obedience, the curses for disobedience, and calls upon the Lord to give a sign that he means business. We see here some some wonderful lessons even for us. We see what a gracious Sovereign God we serve. The people of Israel were sinful and stupid in chapter 8. First they rejected their God, then they rejected His gracious warning about their actions. But because He is gracious, they remained His people. He still heard their cry and He still worked 
to provide them with a Savior. We're reminded that it is while we are still sinners that Christ came to die for us and that God continues to assure us of salvation, not because of us, but, because, but despite of us, because of his great name. Right? In uh, 12, verse 22, the Israelites are told not to fear that the Lord would forsake them because of their wickedness. What a comfort that is for us still. I've told you before, some of you are new, haven't heard the story, that I am a recovering Pharisee. <sighs> I used to wallow in self-pity and guilt whenever I would make a mistake or you know, commit some obvious sin. And uh, one day, this is several years back, I was reading Jerry Bridges' book, The Discipline of Grace. If anybody's read that, you may know what I'm talking about. And I was in the chapter where he was talking about Romans chapter 7. And the Lord just used that to get through to me for some reason. He said, Lisa, you will be a sinner until the day you die. Get over it. Get over yourself. I know that. That's why I sent my son, right? Get over yourself. Don't wallow in your pity that you can't be perfect. Confess your sins. Look to the cross. Claim the washing of the blood of Christ, right? And live in the power of the Holy Spirit whom you have now. And keep your eyes fixed on the day that is to come where you will no longer sin. But get over yourself. And Samuel's kind of telling the people the same thing. You're sinners, but God's not going to forsake you. He is yours. You are his. Our proper response to such a God is to renew our commitment to his kingdom, right? When we consider his sovereign power, it seems strange that we live so often with very little regard to him. How many times, how many days do I get up and don't start my day by thanking him for the night's rest, for a new day, for his word, for keeping me safe? I just do get up and do it. You know, when we consider his sovereign grace, it seems strange that we're so reluctant to entrust every detail of our lives to him. These chapters humble us and motivate us to renew our allegiance to our sovereign, gracious Lord. We do that by first praying for his kingdom to come and by seeking it first in our life. Of course, that's much easier said than done. But here are a couple of questions here. What else am I seeking in my life at the moment? What have I forgotten about God that makes me pursue something other than Him and His kingdom? How does this priority shape my prayers for other Christians, for my family? All right. What else do we see? 
we see our perfect mediator. Samuel was a faithful and righteous, virtuous man, a great leader for the people of Israel. But Samuel himself needed a mediator. We have the privilege of crying out to the only perfect mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Samuel grew old and eventually died. We'll see that in a few chapters. What would happen with this new king was unknown and a little scary. But Jesus, our perfect mediator, never ages. After he gave up his life, the Father raised him to resurrection life. He lives forever as prophet, priest, and king. Samuel displayed powerful rhetorical skills and prophetic preaching that stirred the souls of the people. But his words could not change their hearts. The words of the Lord Jesus, however, are spirit and they are life. And they are able to affect the change of heart that's required to stand before God in his presence. And then we see our perfect king. In the next couple of lessons, we're going to see that Saul fails to be that king that God has in mind for his people. He's more of an antitype pointing us to King Jesus. Jesus is the one who obeys God faithfully, completely, even to death on the cross. He's the one who takes away our reproach. He's the one who will ultimately deliver us from all of our enemies. If our lives are intertwined with this king, we will reign with him on the new earth forever from which God's glory will never depart and where his kingdom is over all. Let's pray. Lord, thank you, thank you, thank you for this wonderful story that you have left us. Thank you for the wonderful vision of John at the end that your sovereignty will be restored over all. Humans will be restored to the status that you originally intended us to have as your vice regents ruling and reigning in your presence with you on the earth. Oh, Lord, fix our eyes on that hope that is to come on our true king and mediator as we live each day. Again, I'll just pray boldly that you make us bold to share this incredible story with everyone you give us an opportunity to share it with. Make us bold. Strengthen us with all your might in our spirits that we may be the contrasting society, the light to the nations that the unbelievers around us need to see. Lord, would you give us a good rest of the week and would you bring us back together on Sunday to worship you. In Christ's name I pray, amen.